Good evening, everybody. Want to again thank Brother Josh for filling in for me this morning in my absence, and I'm sure he did a fine job teaching the class and bringing a lesson this morning. We're going to begin our thoughts tonight, noticing a verse in 2 Corinthians 13. And verse 5, where the Apostle Paul exhorts the Corinthians to examine themselves. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. And really, if you think about the purpose behind any sermon that is preached, any class that is taught, it is pretty much this verse in a nutshell. We are seeking to examine ourselves. We are seeking to test ourselves, to figure out what we need to do to be right with God. And if we're doing anything that is disqualifying us from being in Christ, we want to make correction. In John chapter 6, Jesus has a lot to say about bread. And we had, about a week ago on Sunday evening, kind of dissected this entire chapter in a way. But I want us to notice just a few verses here as we make some introductory uh, commentary. John chapter 6, we're going to read verses 32 through 35, where Jesus there, as he spoke to these, this multitude of people, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Now we know that a little bit later on, shortly before Jesus would be led to the cross, before he offered himself as that perfect lamb for the sins of all the world, that he instituted a memorial to that death that he would suffer. And we observe that here today. That bread that memorializes the body that he gave, the fruit of the vine that reminds us of that perfect blood. And growing up in services... I would typically sit next to my grandmother on her right side. And it's weird how you can kind of look back at certain memories and it's almost like you can put yourself back into your body at that time and kind of look around and see how everything was. And I can still picture sitting next to her, especially as we would partake of the Lord's Supper. And the memories that I have, a lot of them, were even before I had become a Christian, so I was just more or less observing her. 
as she would partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine, as children do. They observe those older than them and through that observation learn things. But I always remember that when she would partake of the bread, you know, she would break off a piece of bread and she would partake of the bread, but there would always be some crumbs on her fingertips afterwards. And I can still clear as day, and I'm sure she still does it today, when she was done, she would kind of hold her hand out like so and just kind of rub her fingers together to get those crumbs off of her finger. Now, why am I sharing that random memory with you? Well, our lesson tonight is titled Crumbs. And Dave made some comment at the beginning of service as to his challenge of picking songs because, well, what is a sermon titled Crumbs all about? But the sermon tonight is really intended for us to, again, going back to the verse we had noted at the beginning, to examine ourselves. As we think about Jesus, not only in the sense of the memorial that we observe to remember his death, but as the bread of life in a larger sense. And we understand that when he says that, what he means is that his instruction, his teaching, following him, is, in a sense, bread to our soul and our spirit. It gives us life as we abide in him. But I wonder sometimes if, as Christians, we don't leave some crumbs behind. We want most of Jesus, but maybe if we're honest, when it boils right down to it, we we find that we're not really following him as perfectly as we should. Maybe we leave this little thing undone that he had commanded, or maybe we are doing something over here occasionally that steps beyond the bounds of where his word would instruct us to be. Not a substantial wandering, but enough. Do we leave crumbs on the plate, if you will, as we think about partaking of the bread of life from day to day? Or do we consume all of that bread? There's a hymn that I don't believe is in our hymn books here, but it is a hymn that talks about the process of a person coming out of their own selfish walk to follow Christ. And it begins by talking of this concept of all of self and none of thee. But then as you go through each verse of the song, uh, that balance begins to change. And we're going to use the concept of that song as the main points of our lesson to talk about some different ideas. But obviously, at the end of the song, it's, it's just the opposite of the first verse. Instead of all of self, now it's none of self, but all of Christ. And that, that is the goal, as we have said. But of course, we understand that there are many who are living that first verse. They are 
consumed wholly with themselves and could care less about anything that Jesus taught or anything that God has commanded, anything that the Bible might describe as worthy of being noted or followed. And there are a couple passages that came to my mind as I thought about that. Romans chapter 1 is one such place we might go to as we think about a description of those who are living this all-of-self, none-of-Christ type of mentality. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, beginning. It says there that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And also birds and four-footed animals, creeping things. He's talking about idols. Therefore, verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness and sexual immorality and wickedness, covetousness and maliciousness, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent and proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. It goes right along with the Thought that is expressed over here in Philippians chapter 3. Verses 18 and 19 there, towards the end of that third chapter. Paul says, Many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Whose God, notice, is their belly whose glory is only in their own shame, 
who set their mind on earthly things. These people have an appetite. They're hungry. But they are not seeking the bread of life to fill that hunger. They are seeking earthly things. They are seeking ultimately their own selves to somehow fulfill all the things that they intrinsically long for. All of self and none of thee. Those who are consumed by selfishness are doomed to an eternity separated from God. But as the song progresses, of course, like we said, we get to the concept of some of self and some of thee. And so these are ones who, recognizing the futility of trying to find true peace and fulfillment and happiness and all these kinds of things uh, using their own so-called wisdom, they recognize, you know, maybe this is not the best way to go about it. They have tasted at least to some degree and seen that the Lord is good, and so there's an interest there. But it is an interest that is yet divided. And we might think about the young man that is described in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 and starting there in verse 16 we read, Behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? You're somebody who recognized who Christ was, recognized that he is good, recognized that there is an expectation from him and from God to do certain things that one might be spared from eternal damnation. And so he's trying to make sure he understands what exactly do I need to do. So Jesus, first of all, uh, teaches a, a lesson, I think, maybe not so much even for that man, but more so for uh, the others who were there and us today, as he makes a point about who is good. And he diverts all glory and goodness and righteousness to the Father. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. But then in answering his question, he says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So he says, well, which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You're to honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Just the opposite of everything we'd read there in Romans chapter 1, right? Exact opposite. And so the young man says, well, look, I've been doing all these things, even from the time that I was uh, a youth. And so what do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when the young man heard this saying, he went away sorrowful. And it tells us why he was sorrowful. It says he had great possessions. And so we have described so perfectly what Jesus had earlier mentioned in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 24. 
where he had told his audience at that time, you cannot serve two masters. You're either going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to be loyal to the one and then despise the other. He says you cannot serve both God, and he uses the word mammon there in that verse, which is a word that describes earthly wealth, earthly things. And so what about us? Are we divided? Are we trying to deceive ourselves into thinking that, well, yeah, I know it says that, but I'm going to be the exception to that rule, right? I'm going to figure out a way that I can have it both ways, that I can have my cake and eat it too. That's the old phrase that we reference so often when talking about these kinds of things. I can be consumed with the wealth of this world and the things of this world, but I can still follow Christ. Now, that's not to say, of course, that if you have stuff that you're not really a Christian. It's just to say that we need to be careful about what it is we're really most interested in and what we're really pursuing more than anything else. Are we like this young ruler who, when we think about the idea of having to give up earthly things so that we might better the livelihood of a brother or sister, Uh, Do we cringe at that? Or do we look for opportunities even with which we might be able to use the blessings we have to benefit someone else? Hopefully we progress as, again, the song progresses. We graduate from complete selfishness but then even further graduate away from this divided interest where we're trying to kind of ride the fence and do both things at once. And hopefully we come to realize that the attitude needs to be ever less of self and more of Christ. And how do we arrive there? How how do we get to where that is our true desire? Well, I think a lot of it hinges on our understanding and appreciation of what Jesus has done. If you come back with me to 1 John chapter 4, and notice just a sampling of verses here from this chapter, looking first of all at verses 9 and 10. He says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son, into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. When you see that word that we never use in our normal everyday conversation, think the word atonement. is basically what that word designates. He atoned for our sins. He paid the price for them. And so God has shown us love, not the other way around. In that, as we go to the language of Paul in 
Romans chapter 5, when we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It was undeserved, unmerited. And you'll notice in verse 19, as he, of course, continues uh, through the thought, uh, he arrives at this statement. He says, we love him because he first loved us. You know, we refer to John 14 and 15 often. What does that say? Dave, what's that say? (laughs) Who knows what John 14, 15 says? To love me, keep my commandments. I put you on the spot. It's my fault. If you love me, keep my commandments. Okay, but why should I love you? Well, here we see. Why? Come with me to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, we read about the events that lead up to Jesus being nailed to that cross. Verse 1. It says, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Such a short sentence. But yet, if you don't really take the time to do a little research into what does it mean that he scourged him? Because you can read through that and think, you know, maybe he flicked his ear or, uh, you know, smacked his back a little bit too rough. I mean, what, what does that really mean? Well, we understand, I I hope most of us understand what it means when it says that Pilate had him scourged, where he took that whip with multiple ends, and at the end of each of those endings would be a piece of sharp bone or rock or something else that would easily tear through flesh, and he would be tied to a post and beaten with that whip over and over and over again. You can only imagine what his back would have looked like at the end of such a beating. Not only did they scourge him, verse 2 says, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. You can imagine, if you've ever been out in the woods and uh, your arm or leg, you know, scrapes up against a, a thorn bush. I mean, that's the reaction is immediate. You, you want to get as far away from that as you can, right? A just very light brushing, I mean, will scratch up your skin and, and pierce, cause you all kinds of problems. But they took those thorns and pressed them down into his scalp. You know how sensitive your scalp is. How many nerve endings are there? So they did that and they then put a purple robe on him so as to mock him. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Pilate hoped that in going through this scourging alone and and them seeing the result 
that that would satisfy their bloodlust and their demands to have him executed, but of course we know how the narrative continues. Jesus came out wearing this crown of thorns and this purple robe, and Pilate said, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, and rather than saying, That's enough, let him go now, you've beaten him to our satisfaction. No, they, they continue to say, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate again says, Well, you take him and crucify him. I find no fault in him. The Jews said, Well, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid, and went again into the praetorium, and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said, Are you not speaking to me? Uh, Do you not know that I have power to crucify you, and power to release you? And Jesus Uh, corrects him, in a sense. He says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Referencing, of course, not God, but the Jews. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. The Jews continued to cry out and say, if you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And Pilate, therefore, When he heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat him in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, uh, and in uh, in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. How often do we contemplate these things? Do we remember these things? Is it just once a week when we observe the bread and fruit of the vine, or or do we daily remind ourselves of all that he went through? Over in Second Corinthians chapter 5, you notice there in verse 21, speaking of God, it says, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is another hymn that we sing, usually in preparation for the Lord's Supper, uh, the title of which is Lead Me to Calvary. And a sampling of the words of that psalm read as follows. Notice this language. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. While the soldiers mocked him with that crown of thorns, here in this hymn is expressed the attitude of one who acknowledges 
that sacrifice and what it accomplished and truly offers Jesus the crown. May I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for thee, even thy cup of grief to share. Thou hast borne all for me. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. I would submit to you that daily we ought to allow ourselves to be led to Calvary to remember because we love him because he first loved us. That is really the only thing that uh, for an individual will motivate them to continue to graduate away from this selfish mentality to one that crowns Jesus as the king of, and we have to make it personal, of my life. I can't control what you do. I can't control who you crown as king for yourself. But I can only control who I crown as king. And who is that? Is it, again, is it myself or have I taken my crown and offered it to the one who died for my sin? Ultimately, we want to get to a place where our view, uh, the lens that we look through at everything that we encounter in this life, good or bad, is none of self and all of thee. Notice with me back here in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, I'd like us to read a portion of this chapter together, starting again in the first verse. It says, So it was as the multitude pressed about Christ to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them, and they were washing their nets. So he got into one of the boats which happened to be Simon's. And he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and and taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out even further into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said, Master, we have toiled all night. We have caught nothing. But then notice his attitude. Despite the failure of the previous night's efforts, he says, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Could we find a more perfect embodiment of none of self and all of thee? Because Peter's every instinct was, this is a waste of time. I've been fishing all my life. This is my trade. This is my occupation. Why would I go waste my time when I know that there's no fish biting? There's no fish to be caught. 
but I'm going to suppress what I think I know and what wisdom I perceive myself to have, and nevertheless, at your word, I will do what you have said. So when they had done this, it says they caught a great number of fish, so much so that their net was breaking. They had to signal to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And so they came and they filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. There were so many fish weighing down these boats. You try and picture that, right? Where the water level is <laughs> creeping scarily close to the edge, to where it's going to start pouring in. When Simon Peter sees this, it says he fell down at Jesus' knees. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were partners with Simon. And Jesus said, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so when they had brought their boats to land, notice, unlike uh, the one we'd read about in Matthew 19, right, who was sorrowful when Jesus said, come and follow me, these individuals forsook all and followed him. Where are we? This evening, have we forsaken all or are there still crumbs on the plate? Over here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, read with me here verses 5 through 10. And notice again the, the humility exemplified by the apostle here as he writes. He says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Whose bondservants? The audience that they're speaking to. We're here as your servants, because that's what Jesus taught us to be, right? Even Jesus' own example was, I'm going to wash your feet. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, What's that referring to? Genesis 1, right? Let there be light and there was light. It is that same God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, these physical bodies that aren't lasting that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. He says, we're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the life, uh, in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested through our bodies, or through, in other, in other words, the lives that we are living. We might think about 
what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. We were there earlier and had read towards the end of the chapter, but if we return there and jump back earlier in the text to about verse 4, notice here again we see really this same kind of attitude expressed by the Apostle Paul. In verse 4, he says, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, he says, I'm more so. So, Paul's kind of in an attempt to illustrate the point, going to kind of step into this all of self, none of thee, uh, mindset for just a moment, just to, to make a point. So he's saying, now look, if, if any of you think that you're something, that you have something you can boast about, listen, I have way more to boast about than any of you. And he's going to explain why that is. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. As you think about the Jewish people, the Pharisees were at the top rank, right? They were the ones that really knew the law and supposedly followed the law. Now we know, of course, the hypocrisy that plagued them. Jesus identified that on several occasions. But nonetheless, that was the understanding of a Jewish person. Concerning zeal, how zealous was Paul as a Jewish man. He says, to the extent that I was persecuting the church, which to the average Jew at that time, who did not understand all the prophecy and how it was fulfilled in Christ, did not make that connection yet, that's the same view they had. Well, the church is this plague on society and needs to be wiped out. It's a mockery, right, they claimed, of God. And so he's saying concerning being zealous, that was the extent that I was, uh, was at. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he says, I was blameless. That's not to say Paul, then Saul, never sinned. And we see the sin in, in how he had been mis, misinformed and had misunderstood who Jesus was. But as others would look on him and his example, they would conclude, much like Noah is spoken of back in the book of Genesis in chapter 6, it says he was blameless in his generation, right? In other words, you compare him with the average person and no one would reach any other conclusion than, well, that person is following God. He's doing his very best. He's an example. This is who Saul was. But then he goes on, he says, what things were gain to me? The same kinds of things that, again, that young man in Matthew 19 would have been wrapped up in. Riches and honor and prestige, all these types of things. He says, these I have counted loss. Why? For Christ. Indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, but 
I'm not upset about it. You know, he, he's talking about all this that he's lost, but he's like, don't get the wrong idea. I'm not complaining. It's as if it were garbage to me, he says. I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind. What things? All those things that he just described. I don't sit around and think, oh, how nice it was when I was yet Saul, the persecutor, and all the prestige I had, and everyone just adored me, and, you know, I was well off, didn't have any problems. He says, listen, I'm not sitting around thinking about all that that I left behind. He says, I forget about it. It's not important to me. And I reach forward to those things which are ahead. It's not just looking forward. Notice the language is, I'm reaching forward. Have you ever, I think about when I was a young child or observing my children, when there's something that a young child wants, do they just kind of sit there and, could you please get me that, please? No, no, they're... They're trying to get it, right? And usually it's something you don't want them to have, so you're trying to intercept them and grab them before they grab this shiny thing that could be broken very easily, right? But they're reaching for that. That's what I want. Paul says, that's what I'm doing spiritually. I'm reaching forward to those things that are ahead. I'm straining myself to get there. And I don't care what I have to lose. I don't care what I have to forget about because it's worth it. We're talking about eternal life. We're talking about salvation for my soul. Despite the sins that have rendered me unfit to be in God's presence, Christ died so that that can all be forgiven. And so I'm going to dedicate myself. I'm going to reach forward, press toward, verse 14, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He had said earlier in that same letter, in chapter 1 and verse 21, for me to live is Christ. What are you living for, Paul? What gets you out of bed every morning? Christ. And so what about you and I? Perhaps you're here this evening and you've never accepted the gift that Jesus suffered so much to make possible for you. The question we would ask you this evening is, 
would you be willing, as Paul did, to die to self, recognizing the futility of life under the sun and all the pursuits that men get engaged in that they think will lead them where they want to go, but sadly, none of those paths will ever accomplish their intended purpose. There is but one way to God. There is but one way to eternity that is devoid of any kind of suffering or pain or negativity of any kind, and that is through Jesus. We must die, as Paul said, he died with him. In Romans chapter 6, verses many of us know well. There in verses 3 and 4, it says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. In Colossians chapter 2, notice with me there, starting in verse 11. It says, In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. This wasn't some physical thing that they could then boast about like the Jews did with their physical circumcision. This is a putting off, as he says, the body of the sins of the flesh by this circumcision of Christ. And what is that? It's, as he goes on in verse 12, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working or the operation of God who raised him from the dead, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's now made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And you jump down to that third chapter there, and you read just the first 11 or so verses, and we can see what someone who has died with Christ is now living for. What have we been raised to? Chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. You'll be with Him for eternity. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication and uncleanness and passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Put off anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you've again put off the old man with his deeds. You put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. 
For there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And of course, we could continue reading. Uh, he continued to, to further describe the new man there in that chapter. And so perhaps on your own time, you'll be encouraged to, to read that for yourself. But tonight, can we say, as Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is my hope that as we think about our own consumption of this bread of life, that we will all be motivated to not leave any crumbs. We need all of that bread. We need every day the entire meal so that we might be what we were created to be. So that we might live for he who died for us. And be able to look forward with confidence to that home that awaits the faithful. Tonight, if we can be of assistance to you in regards to your personal walk with Jesus. Your personal relationship with God through Jesus. If we can help you in assistance with being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, if we can pray with you or pray for you, whatever it is, we would love to do everything we can for you tonight. And so, at this time, as our brother has selected a song of encouragement, of invitation, we recognize that Jesus' invitation, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, that invitation stands and can be accepted here in these very next few moments as we sing this song. If you're here and you're in need, please come to the front as we do that very thing.